0: Everyone has hard times and bad days, right? We're all familiar with pain. Like the man who, after his annual checkup, received a frightening call from his doctor. And he said, I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. The doctor said, you have only 48 hours left to live. That's terrible news, cried the patient. Well, the doctor continued, I'm afraid I have even worse news than that. And the man was shocked. He was stunned. And he said, what could possibly be worse than the news that you've already given me? To which the doctor replied, I've been trying to get a hold of you since yesterday. (laughs) Wah, wah, I know. Well, I hope that your week has been a little bit better than that. But even if it hasn't, whatever it is that you're going through this morning, I, uh, I want you to know that my hope, my desire this morning in bringing this text to you is that this text would strengthen your heart. I hope it lifts your soul this morning. I hope that you're encouraged. So I invite you to take your Bible... And turn with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. We have a lot of reading ahead of us this morning. I made the mistake of coming up here without a glass of water. So um, I will try to... Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> um, but we do have a lot of reading this morning. So um, so I hope you come prepared for that. I can see why Bill would ask me to preach after we have a massive breakfast here. Um, so So long as nobody snores too loudly, I think we'll be fine. We'll get through this. Um, we're going to look at all 22 verses this morning. Ambitious, I know, but we'll start with the transcription. Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes us boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants, None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The title of this morning's message is Seeing God in the Dark, A Poor Man's Poem, because that is exactly what this is. It's a poem, beautifully crafted by a man, poor in spirit, surrounded by darkness and the threat of death. Psalm 34 is an acrostic poem, meaning that each line begins with a different letter from the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters total in the Hebrew alphabet, and we have 22 lines here now. I will tell you that there is one letter that's missing in this particular poem. It's the wow. It's the Hebrew, uh, letter that's also used for the word and. Um, and so one letter is missing. Another letter is repeated. It really has no bearing on our message this morning. I'm just throwing it out there so none of you lose sleep over it. Um, in case any of you do happen to read Hebrew and you say, wait a minute, there's a letter that's missing here. Well, it's still an acrostic poem. And this is the third acrostic poem to appear in the Psalter. There are eight of them altogether. Four appear in the beginning in book one and four appear at the end in Book 5. Perhaps the most famous of the acrostics is Psalm 119, considered by many to be the longest chapter in the Bible, because it's huge, it's massive, and each letter there gets its own stanza instead of its own verse. The late, great James Montgomery Boyce suggested that acrostic poems were written for a number of reasons, and I found this particularly helpful, and that's why I'm going to share it with you this morning. First of all, he proposed that it might be an artistic device, that these uh, these acrostic poems, they sort of, they, they add a certain beauty to the psalm, much like how rhyming does for our poetry. So it could just be simply artistic. Secondly, he says that it might indicate that the subject is being covered completely, from A to Z, so sort to of speak, as we would say in our vernacular, because it's starting from the beginning of the Hebrew alphabet, and it moves all the way through to the end. And this is particularly attractive when we consider Psalm 119, which exhaustively explores the nature and value of God's word. Thirdly, he suggests that the acrostic may have been a mnemonic device designed simply to assist the young in learning the psalms. Because after all, it's easier to memorize a piece of poetry than prose. All that to say, Psalm 34 is a beautifully written, comprehensive teaching psalm. It's a wonderful poem, and it comes to us from a very dark period in David's life. We know this from the transcription. It says, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out, and he went away. I like how the Holman translates it. That version says, concerning David when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech, who drove him out and he departed. Of all the Psalms, only 14 of them have a transcription that ties the material directly to a specific historical event in David's life. And this is the fifth of those. But why is David pretending to be insane? Why is he acting like a madman at all? Who is he on the run from, and what is going on in this particular situation? Well, the setting for our text comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21. Let's look at that for a moment. 1 Samuel 21. At this point, Saul has threatened David's life, and he had to take off in a hurry. We'll start at the beginning of the chapter to set the stage. 1 Samuel 21, verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Now, one thing to keep in mind, this Ahimelech that we're about to look at here. He's not the same Abimelech that was mentioned earlier in our transcription. They sound familiar, but they're not the same guy. Abimelech is simply an ancient royal title. It means, my father, the king. And the Philistines would use this title for their king, similar to how the Egyptians would call their ruler Pharaoh. The Philistines would call their ruler Abimelech. And in this case, the title refers to King Achish of Gath. And we'll learn more about him here in a few minutes. But Ahimelech was a good guy with... A really unfortunate sounding name. At least it sounds unfamiliar and strange to us. And if there are any couples out there this morning who are expecting a child anytime soon and you're looking for a strong biblical boy name that nobody else uses, Ahimelech, is on the table. You can use that one. I present it to you for your consideration. He'll probably get beat up a lot in school, but that's okay. Who cares? He's at least named after a good guy in the Bible. Back to verse 1. And Ahimelech... Came to meet David trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to him like the priest, The king has charged me with the matter, and said, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a time and place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. So David then goes on to soothe the priest's conscience, and the priest agrees. Look at verse 6. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So in other words, David is alone, he's starving, he's on the run, and he doesn't know where to go or what to do. And so he finds himself in Nob, and he asks for the holy equivalent of Jimmy John's day-old bread from the priest's. And the priest agrees, and he gives it to him. Look at verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business requires haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, you remember him, right? Whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none here but that. And David said... There is none like that, give it to me. So he says, okay, if that's the best you've got, give me the giant sword. And now we're ready for the setting of Psalm 34. David is tired, he's hungry, he's running away from Saul, right into the heart of Philistine territory with Goliath's sword. And things are really not looking good for David. Verse 10, And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances after he had struck down Goliath? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? These Philistines knew exactly who David was. And that terrified him. That scared him to death. By the way, Gath was Goliath's hometown. So here comes David, Israel's champion, strolling in to the town that Goliath came from with Goliath's sword. Talk about awkward And dangerous, very dangerous for David. And David took these words to heart, and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this fellow in to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? It's a clever trick. So ladies, if you ever find yourself in a heated argument with your husband and he starts acting a little strange and drooling into his beard and scribbling things on the wall, just know it's a trick. And uh, unless he really has lost it, then you might want to seek some help. But look at the beginning of chapter 22, and we'll, and we'll move on from here. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt And everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. It is likely that David wrote the psalm that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 34, during his time at the cave of Adullam. Adullam, by the way, means refuge. Now let me ask you this, knowing the backstory, do you think that David was having a good day when he sat down to write Psalm 34? Do you think he was having a good time? Do you think he was ready to sit down and write a Holy Spirit-inspired psalm of praise in the middle of everything that he was going through? On the run from Saul, exiled, starving, defenseless, he finds himself scribbling nonsense on the gates of his enemies while drooling into his beard, pretending to be crazy, only to hide out in a cave for who knows how long and finally attract 400 of the most depressing people imaginable. The text says everyone who is in distress... Everyone who was in debt. Everyone who was bitter in soul. They all came to him. And this became his army. Instead of Robin Hood and his merry men, you've got poor David and his gloomy men. This is not a good time for David. And yet, what does he write during these dark days? Hold up in a cave in a dullum, hunted and depressed. Look back at Psalm 34. He begins with this explosive charge of praise and worship to God. He shouts, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of my shame and my pain and despair and all the times, continually, no matter what, no matter what I face, at all times, I will bless the Lord. I will keep on doing it. I will praise His name. My soul makes His boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Notice that His boast is in the Lord, not in His cleverness, To feign insanity and escape the Philistine king. No, he boasts in the Lord and that's perfectly fine. That's good. We should do that. That's the one thing that you can properly brag about. Because the object of your boasting is not in you. The object of your boasting is in the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God of the universe. And it's okay to brag about him. It's okay to brag about his goodness. In fact, you should. Those who are humble enough to admit that they are weak and give praise where praise is due are glad to. And that naturally leads into a call to worship. He says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David begins by praising God himself. And then he invites the rest of us to join in with him and to worship God of our own. While being hunted, persecuted, and reviled and ridiculed, David knew the secret to having a good life, to having a blessed life. And his testimony is a living example for what that looks like. Psalm 34 is a powerful poem about seeing God in the dark. And it doesn't just call us to worship during the darkest times of our lives. It tells us why we should. For the remainder of this text, David encourages us to redirect our attention from the filth of our circumstances to the Lord's goodness. And in doing so, he provides at least five reasons for us to worship God during trouble. Why give God all the honor and praise that he is due? Even when the world crumbles and burns before our eyes, why should we do that? Because when we do, when we look to him in the dark, we see these five things that will strengthen and encourage us when we need it the most. So let's get started. When we look to the Lord, the first thing that we see here is his protection. His protection. Look at verses four through seven. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. As we just read in 1 Samuel 21, this is the lowest period of David's life thus far. He's never had it this bad up to this point in his life. I mean, he, uh, one chapter before that in 1 Samuel 20, we didn't look at it this morning because we had a long breakfast and I really don't want to keep you here longer than two or three hours, maybe tops. Um, But in 1 Samuel chapter 20, he had to part ways with his best friend, Jonathan. After confirming that Jonathan's father, Saul, was out to kill him. So David was alone, without friends, without bodyguards, without weapons, and without food. And by the time he gets to the cave, all he has is Goliath's sword and a few hundred sad people to keep him company. No wonder he refers to himself in verse 6 as this poor man. He had nothing. He literally didn't have anything. He didn't have two nickels to rub together to his name. He had nothing. He was poor. And that might be the case for some of you this morning. You might have nothing. Well, then take heart, because this psalm was written for those who are alone and destitute, for poor men and women, those who are at the lowest point of life when everything is against them. And David says here to do what he did. He says, do what I did. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. I looked to him. I cried out, and he heard me. He saved me from all of my troubles. He protected me. I'm still in danger even right now, but I know that he's the one who protects me. David was so confident in the Lord, and we should be too. Look at what he says in verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Listening to Pastor Bill's messages online, I know that he recently mentioned from the pulpit that he believes there is strong evidence for the angel of the Lord's identity as being that of the pre-incarnate Christ. And I completely agree with that assertion. Completely agree with it. The angel of the Lord shows up a lot through the Old Testament. He's the one who first confronts Hagar and comforts her in the desert. In Exodus three, he's there inside the burning bush. The angel of the Lord is the one who is in the burning. That's one of my. By the way, that's one of my biggest pet peeves, is how so often growing up we we have these fine, wonderful. Uh, how do we put it? Like children's books and uh, coloring books and other things that that sometimes only show part of the picture. I've never colored a, a burning bush picture in my life where the angel of the Lord is present, but he's there. He's in the text. It's not just a voice coming from a bush. The angel of the Lord is physically there. And he's the one who tells Moses, you tell them my name is Yahweh. You tell them Yahweh sent you when you go down there. He's the one who stopped Abraham from sacrificing Isaac in Genesis 22. And that's not even scratching the surface. All the way up until the incarnation, all throughout the Old Testament, you see him. You see the angel of the Lord diving into the stream of history, altering the course of human events, and then jumping back out again. And in every case, he speaks as God, for God, and more importantly, he receives worship that is reserved for God alone. The angel of the Lord is the second member of the Godhead. He is the pre-incarnate Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And don't let this word angel fool you. The root meaning for the word angel simply translates messenger. It means to send or to send on a commission, so the phrase could just as easily be translated messenger of Yahweh or one sent or commissioned of Yahweh. And I encourage you, if you haven't already, keep your eyes open for the angel of the Lord as you read through the Old Testament. You will be shocked. You'll be surprised at just how often he shows up and what he does. And hopefully you'll be invigorated to see your Savior at work even before he came to save. After all, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And here we see that he protects and delivers those who are his. He doesn't just deliver us from our fears like we see in verse 4. He doesn't just deliver us from our troubles, like we see in verse 6. He also delivers us from those who would like to see us dead. When it comes to God, it's important for us to remember that nobody truly dies prematurely, at least not from his vantage point. You can be confident that he will preserve you until it is time for him to take you home. Job 14, 5, there Job cries out to God and says that man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you. And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. So you're not going to live longer than what God has already appointed. That's for sure. David declares in Psalm 139 that God is keeping a record of our days, even before any of them are actually written. Do you really think that the one who knows how many hairs are left on your head doesn't know the time and place and the circumstances of your death? David knew who the giver and keeper of life is, and that's why he could say in Psalm 3115, my times are in your hands. Friends, who better to turn to for protection than the sovereign ruler of everything, the one who shaped the mountains outside these windows, the one who plays with the hearts of men like putty, the one who commands armies and controls time itself. When you finally reach the end of your rope, are you seriously going to consider running to someone else or something else other than this great God that we have? Historical legend has it that in 1799, Napoleon's armies appeared on the heights above Felkirk, which is located on the Austrian border. It was Easter and the military's weapons could be seen at a distance, glittering in the morning sun to the hills in the west. So the town council quickly decided to gather at the local church and discuss their next move. They appeared to have two options, mount a defense or wave a white flag of surrender and hope for the best. Well, after much discussion, the pastor rose and he said, My brothers, we've been counting on our own strength and apparently that has failed. Therefore, let us turn to God, as this is the day of our Lord's resurrection, Let us just ring the bells, have our service as usual, and leave the matter in his hands. We know only our weakness and not the power of God to defend us. Well, this resonated with the town council members, so they agreed and rang the bells. Well, soon the streets were crowded with the bustle of worshipers on their ways to church. And the French army, they also heard the bells as well. And they concluded that the Austrian army had finally arrived to defend the town. So that morning, before the service ended, the enemy had already broken camp and left. Too often, like the pastor said, we know only our weakness and not the power of God to defend us. When we look to God in the dark, we see his protection, his sustaining power and infinite love. But that's not all we see. We also witness his provision. That's point number two on your outline, his provision. Look at verses 8 through 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The most popular portion of our text by far is found in verse 8. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And it is a beautiful verse. Perhaps some of you may have heard it during a communion service, and that's perfectly acceptable. There's nothing wrong with doing that. I mean, after all... This verse does carry a strong sense of physicality with this descriptive command to come and to taste and to see. In fact, it is so descriptive that it sometimes makes people feel somewhat uncomfortable because some have suggested that it is impious or irreverent to compare God to good food. And yet, that is exactly what David does here. He says, come and try God out as you would some delicacy or fine treat. I mentioned James Montgomery Boyce earlier and I like what he had to say about it. I found it particularly helpful. He said, although God is more than this image suggests, he is certainly not less. Our problem is not that we think of him too literally, but that we do not think of him literally enough. And I like that. That's good. Yes, we should all agree that God is greater than the metaphor, but in our attempts to not tie him down, let's not forget that he is greater than the greatest thing we could possibly think of. And it's okay to compare him to the greatest thing we can possibly think of now, knowing that he is far greater than that. Whatever that is, whether it's fine food or the world's fastest roller coaster, it's okay. What David is offering here is a challenge. He's saying if you come to the Lord, you will see that he is altogether good. And you will experience that goodness for yourself. And at that point, you won't just be satisfied with the taste. God is so good, you will want more and more and more and more and more. Until eventually you're all in. He says blessed or happy is the man who takes refuge in him. This is the same word that we see at the very beginning of the Psalter in Psalm 1. The very first word that we see. Blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The guy with a good life takes refuge in him. The guy who loves life and desires to see good days takes refuge in him not the man who signs a temporary lease or buys a timeshare or takes a vacation in him but the one who takes refuge in him the one who moves in who turns to the Lord for protection fortification and ultimate safety God offers all of that and David is saying check it out for yourself blessed is the man who does he goes on to tell the saints to fear the Lord why? for those who fear him have no lack he then provides another comparative metaphor here with the young lions the king of the jungle even in their youth And in their strength, in the highest point of their lives, they still starve. They still go without food. And yet God will not let that happen to his righteous. And he does this to emphasize this point before declaring that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. In other words, God provides for those who fear him, who seek him. Those who are his are not lacking. They are taken care of. Now please don't understand what the Spirit is saying here this morning. This is not a promise to get rich obviously, and I hope none of you are taking it as such. It would be easy for a prosperity preacher to end here and start pumping the rest of us for money, right? I may have sat in a couple of those services once or twice. I'm sure some of you have too. But notice that David never says, give more to get more here. He doesn't say that. He simply says that those who taste and see the goodness of God for themselves, who run to him for safekeeping and entrust themselves to his care, And that's just an Old Testament way of saying, by the way, those who live by faith, those who fear God, who respect him with an astonished sense of wonder and awe and reverence, those who are rightly afraid of his power and his righteousness, so they seek him wholeheartedly to strive to obey him in all that he has commanded, that person who does that will find him substantial, strong, sheltering, sovereign, and sympathetic to their needs. That's all he's saying. David did. And don't forget that David did not write this from the comfort of his palace study sometime well after the fact. He's still in a cave surrounded by society's losers. He's still poor and he's being hunted by his best friend's dad, the king. And yet, he sees God's provision. Even when he's lacking the most, he can say with confidence that he lacks nothing because God is the one who has given him everything. And that should be no surprise to us. No surprise to us at all this morning because God is so good. All his provisions in life demonstrate his goodness all that he creates and all that he gives is good so david testifies to god's protection and provision it's number one and two number three now we see his proposal his proposal look at verses 11 through 14 come oh children listen to me i will teach you the fear of the lord what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Friends, it's time for us to enjoy a Holy Spirit-inspired Sunday School lesson. That's what we have here in our text. He says, come and listen, and I will explain to you exactly what a right fear of the Lord looks like. This is what it looks like. Most writers make a distinction between our definition of fear and reverence. And that's good. They should. That's something that we should definitely do. We shouldn't be afraid of God as someone is afraid of a monster in a scary movie. In fact, one of the definitions of fear found in Merriam-Webster says to have a reverential awe of, particularly relating to God. But notice that this is not how David defines fear. Here in our text, in our divinely inspired Sunday school lesson, he defines the fear of the Lord not by emotion, not by attitude, but by action. By action. Peter would later pick up on this and use Psalm 34 To describe the essentials of living a moral life. Go ahead and flip over with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter is full of what I like to call comfort theology. It was written to suffering Christians who needed a healthy dose of comfort and encouragement. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Sound familiar? When it comes to David's Sunday school lesson, Peter got it. He got the lesson. Because at this juncture in First Peter, he's beginning his section on how to suffer well for your faith. And what better Old Testament instruction for him to call upon than Psalm 34, where the faithful are encouraged to seek God in the dark, to worship him and be blessed. And Peter takes us straight to the Sunday school lesson part of the poem. Do you want to live a good life? Even when your life has fallen apart, of course you do. Everyone wants to live a happy life. Who doesn't? Everyone does. Well, here's how you do it. You keep, you turn, and you seek. You keep your tongue from evil, you turn away from evil, and you seek peace. According to David and the Holy Spirit, who inspired both passages here, this is what the fear of the Lord looks like. This is the beginning of wisdom. This is the proposal that God has placed on the table. You want to navigate this world wisely? You want to avoid suffering the painful consequences of your own sinful mistakes? You want to enjoy the time that you have here, regardless of how dark things get? Then fear the Lord. How? By actively obeying Him. And as Peter put it, you will obtain a blessing. You will obtain a blessing when you do that. That's number three. When we worship God in the dark, we see his protection, his provision, and his proposal. But we also see his posture, his posture. Look at verses 15 through 18. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles the lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit this is a wonderful wonderful part of our psalm and here we have two groups the righteous and the wicked and the important thing for us to notice is god's posture towards each in verse 15 he is towards the righteous In verse 16 he is against the wicked in verses 17 and 18 he hears and delivers he is near and he saves the righteous A better preacher than I had this to say. He said, concerning this idea of having God's attention or having his eyes and his ears, he said, The righteous are so dear to God that he cannot take his eyes off them. He watches each one of them as carefully and intently as if they were the only creature in the universe. Friends, when you pray, you want the eyes and the ears of God. You want him to see your pain. You want him to hear your prayers. You want him to do something about your troubles. You want him to come close to you, to comfort you when your heart is broken. You want him to save you when your spirit is crushed. Church, this is what God does. This is his loving response to his loving children. This is his posture towards those who take refuge in him, who entrust themselves to his care. And if you accept the proposal that we just looked at, to fear and obey him, you will be blessed, as Peter summarizes it, but you will also enjoy all of these benefits and more from a kind and loving and attentive father. For those of you who have A sweet communal relationship with the Lord this morning. Aren't you thankful for this truth? Aren't you thankful to have the eyes and ears of God? And doesn't it break your heart to think of those who will never know the Lord this way? I pray that all of this is true for you this morning. I pray that it is your delight to sacrificially serve your king. To hold back your lips from deceit and your tongue from evil. To painfully turn away from evil even when you don't want to. To do what is right, to do what is good. As Peter will say later in 1 Peter 2.11, I beg you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul to destroy you. I pray that you will run the race and fight the fight. I pray that your inner man is renewed day after day after day. I pray that you would do as the apostle commands in 2 Peter 1.10 that you would be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. And in doing so, I hope that you are more like Christ today than you were a year ago. And that the word of God has found good soil in your heart this morning. And that its roots run deep into the very core of who you are to bear much fruit. Because, friends, it's worth it. God's posture towards you is worth it. His care, his concern, his presence, his love, his protection, his provision, his promises. It's all worth it. And it's all there for the blessing. And all you have to do is cry out to him. Cry out to him. Unfortunately... So many many of the time, we, we don't do that. We don't cry out to him. George Washington, I hate to admit this, but I really don't know that much about the man's life. So if anyone here has a good biography or something that you want to recommend to me for George Washington, I would really appreciate it because I'd like to learn more about him. But I do remember reading when I was a kid in school that he was a man of prayer. I doubt that part is in the curriculum today, but it was when I was a kid. Particularly during the time when he and his men passed through Valley Forge supposedly at that time a farmer happened to approach him one day at his camp and he didn't know who he was at first all he heard was this man blubbering out in the woods coming closer he saw george washington on his knees tears streaming down his cheeks lost in prayer to god the farmer returned home and excitedly said to his wife george washington will succeed george washington will succeed the americans will secure their independence and the man's wife asked what makes you think so To which he replied, I heard him pray out in the woods today, and the Lord will surely hear his prayer. He will. You may rest assured, he will. And we all know the rest of the story. Now, I'm not saying that any of us have the right or ability to strong-arm God into giving us what we want, when we want it, when we pray. And I hope that's not your takeaway this morning. But on the flip side of that, some of us never cry out to our loving Father at all. When things don't go our way, what do we normally do? We cry out to each other or anyone else who will listen. Or we quietly mutter profanities under our breath. And we blame others for not caring enough. We implode on ourselves rather than explode into praise unto God. And most of us, these things, these are normal responses for fallen man. But they should not be normal responses for the redeemed. Can you imagine what it would be like if we all followed David's example? And if on our worst days we resolved ourselves to say, I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise will continually be on my lips. Christian, you have the greatest privilege in the universe. You have the eyes and the ears of God. Use that privilege. Cry out to him and take heart. Because verse 18, he is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So let's not ignore, though, the second group that is listed here in our text. The negative side of things, and that is those who do evil. Look at the Lord's posture towards them in verse 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. You know, often it appears as though the wicked have the upper hand. And Asaph wrote a brutally honest psalm about that. Let's look at it real quickly. I said I wouldn't keep you here too long this morning, and I lied. So, Psalm 73. Let's look at that. This is one of my favorite psalms. People always ask you what your favorite psalm is, and I can never narrow it down to just one. But Psalm 73 is definitely in my top 150. It is so good. So, so good. I love Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. He says, I almost messed up big time. And here's how. For I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. These are big talking men. In other words, they get away with it. Look at verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Have you ever felt like that? I know I have. I think that we all have at one point in time, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. Because he's looking at the wicked and he's wondering, what gives? My pursuit of righteousness keeps bringing me pain and heartache. But these God-haters, they're the ones that are enjoying life. They're the ones who are doing well. Why, God? Why are you blessing them and hurting me? But look at how things take a turn in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I just didn't want to deal with it. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So he goes to the Lord, and here is the truth he finds. Truly, you set them in slippery places." You make them fall to ruin, how destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you Rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The legacy of the wicked is destruction, destruction. As our text says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off even the memory of them from the earth. He goes out of his way to end them, to wipe them out, even their legacy. Hopefully you have arrived at the same conclusion as Asaph has in Psalm 73. I would much rather have the eyes and the ears of God towards me than the face of his wrath against me. And I hope you can say the same. When we praise him in the pain, we see his posture towards us and others. That's number four. David has called us to worship God with him. And as we have seen that as we direct our attention towards God in the heat of life's sorrows, what do we, what do we view more, more clearly here? But his protection, his provision, his proposal, and his posture. Well, finally, David concludes his poem with God's promise. He ends on a high note, as you would expect. Look at verses 19 through 22. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. As I mentioned earlier, it would be an easy temptation for a prosperity preacher to lift key verses from this psalm and run with them. But they would have to skip verse 19 if they did. One of the things that I love about the Holy Spirit and the scriptures is that they're honest. They're completely honest. They don't lie to us. They don't fool us in any way. They don't gloss over the truth. They're just honest. And here, he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. I love how Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says, Scripture does not flatter us with the idea that goodness will somehow secure us from trouble. Let's not confuse those two things. On the contrary, we are again and again warned to expect tribulation while we are in this body. The righteous are not promised a comfortable life now, but we are promised afflictions. And more than one, more than two, more than three, we're promised many, many afflictions. You're saying, Hans, I thought this was supposed to be an encouraging psalm this morning. Well, thankfully we have this little word, but, to help take the sting out of this verse. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Praise God. Praise God for that. There is an end to the believer's affliction. And that's not all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. This is symbolic, poetic language that emphasizes the completeness of God's protection over the afflicted righteous. But this was also a literal and miraculous truth concerning Jesus at the time of his crucifixion. John references it in John 19.36. And that is a tremendous supernatural truth, isn't it? Because Isaiah 52.14 tells us, that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind i remember asking my seminary professors just not too long ago, a few years ago i remember asking them is there anything in the hebrew there that would indicate that this is poetic or hyperbolic or somehow not to be taken literally and they would all say no no this is exactly what happened this is to be taken very literally his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, if after the crucifixion, if you found Jesus' body in a field somewhere, you would have no idea what you were looking at. You wouldn't know. That's how bad it was. He didn't even look human. And yet, in spite of that, not one bone in his body was broken. That's supernatural. When they beat him and kicked him and whipped him, he didn't have one hairline fracture on his cheekbone. He didn't have one broken rib. Not one. What happened that day was incredible. It was amazing. But you see, that's how true to his word God really is. Jesus is the only truly righteous man to ever live. Completely, totally, without sin. He lived a perfectly sinless life. And it had to be that way. In order for us to become truly righteous men and women along with him. Destined to rule and reign as adopted sons and daughters in the divine family. You see, if Psalm 3420 is symbolic poetic language for the level of care that God has for the righteous sinner, then how much more so would it have to be taken literally for the one truly righteous man who is never sent? That's how That's how strongly God holds to his word. And it's incredible. And I say all of that for two reasons. First of all, we need to marvel at the total faithfulness of God to his word concerning the ultimate sacrifice of our magnificent Savior. We need to do that this morning. It's all about Christ. It's all about what he has done for us on the cross. And it would be wrong for us, I believe, to just gloss over this and say, well, you know, John said something about it and we should just move on. That's the first reason. But secondly, I also highlight, highlight that because we need to recognize that the specific application of this verse to Jesus' life, it doesn't nullify the general application as it still applies to us. The text can never mean what it never meant. And verse 20 still emphasizes the completeness of God's protection over the afflicted righteous. David was beat up pretty badly, but he wasn't broken. And the same can be said for us. And we have that to look forward to. Once again, the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, says, and I love this so much. He says, No substantial injury occurs to the saints. Eternity will heal all their wounds. Their real self is safe. They may have flesh wounds, But no part of the essential fabric of their being will be broken. That is so good. I love that quote. Eternity will heal our temporary wounds, but no part of us, the real us, will ever be broken. That is an encouraging, encouraging truth, unlike the wicked. Look at verse 21. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Verse 19 tells us that the righteous, we have many afflictions, but our afflictions don't kill us. Our afflictions don't ultimately destroy us and they're temporary. They're here for a brief period of time, and then there's relief, forever. Not so much for the wicked. Their affliction will ultimately consume them, until there is nothing left but agony and hatred. This is the destiny for those who hate the righteous, who choose to do evil, who reject God's proposal, and ultimately reject the Son's sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins, and the gift of new life in Him. And I hope, I pray, that that does not describe any of you here this morning. Well, this poor man ends his poem with a final encouraging reminder. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. No matter how dark things get, remember your Redeemer. After all, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the promise that we have in him. Well, the year was 1869. Some of you may be familiar with this story. It's a very popular story, but I'd like to still share it with you anyway. In 1869, Horatio Spafford was on top of the world. He was a successful lawyer with property investments that were growing in a booming metropolis of Chicago. He had a beautiful wife, a son, four daughters, and a song in his heart. The sky was the limit, and things were looking up for the Spafford family. That is, until the following year, when they lost their son to scarlet fever. Soon after that, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 rolled through, and it decimated his investments. Over the next several years, the economy would continue to tank as much of the Midwest fell under a severe economic depression and recession. Believing that matters could not get much worse, Horatio planned a much-needed European vacation for himself and the family. So at the last minute, he found himself delayed, unfortunately, from work, so he was forced to send his wife and his daughters ahead of time. And while they were crossing the Atlantic, their ship collided with another vessel and quickly sank to the bottom of the ocean. All four of Horatio's daughters died, but his wife Anna survived. He was he was traveling across the ocean to comfort his grieving wife when the ship's captain called him into his private cabin. And there the captain revealed that they were sailing over the, what he believed was the exact spot where the ship went down and where Horatio's daughters had perished. In a whirlwind of emotion, Horatio responded by returning to his cabin and penning these, favorite, these famous words. He wrote, "...when peace like a river..." attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. A few days later, he wrote a letter to his sister in which he said, On Thursday last, we passed over the spot where she went down in mid-ocean, the water three miles deep. But I do not think of our dear ones there. They are safe folded, the dear lambs, and there before very long shall we be too. In the meantime, thanks to God... We have an opportunity to serve and praise Him for His love and mercy to us and ours. I will praise Him while I have my being. May we each one arise, leave all, and follow Him. I can't even begin to imagine what that level of loss feels like. But perhaps some of you can. Church, when many afflictions come, come what may, and we know they will, will you be able to say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes us boasts in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Will you do that? Let's not live like those who are perishing, like those who are without hope because they don't understand. But for those of us who have the comfort of a close redeemer, when we praise God in the dark, we see his protection, his provision, his proposal, his posture, and his promise. And when that happens, we see more of him, and we are blessed. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we are just struck with the magnitude of your grace and your mercy to us. Lord, our hearts break for the wicked. We break for those who do not know you in this way, who do not have your eyes and ears, but have your face turned against them in wrath. Lord, I pray that you would soften hearts, that you would call people unto you, that you would pull the blinders off and unstop the ears this morning. I pray that people would turn from doing evil, from that that wicked desire to rebel against you pridefully, and that instead they would fall on their faces and they would worship you as their savior and their king, and that you would redeem them, that you would give them new life, that you would give them a new heart. Lord, I pray for those of us who are hurting this morning, who are suffering pain and loss, that this would be real for them. And for us, Lord, that that as we turn to you, that we would sense your presence, that we would know that you are near us, that you comfort those who are, are broken in heart. Lord, again, we are overwhelmed by the privilege that we have of having your face, your eyes and your ears, and your concern and your attention directed towards us. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you for the promises that we have in you. Lord, you are so great and you are so mighty. And you are worthy of praise at all times. I pray that you would continually remind us of this truth, that we would get to a point where praising you and worshiping you in the midst of our trouble, that that would be our knee-jerk reaction, that that would be the first thing that we do, that we wouldn't implode on ourselves but explode in praise to you. I pray that that would be what we are known for, what we are characterized as, as we call others to worship you too, and that it would be a powerful testimony to your goodness in our lives and your greatness because every good thing that we have has come from you. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for bringing us together for worship and for praise. Thank you for it all, Lord. We are so, so overwhelmingly grateful for all that you have done for us. Go with us this week and all that we say and do. May you be honored and glorified and praised through everything, no matter what it is, no matter what comes. May you be first and foremost before us. We love you, and in your name, amen.